the anointing means you're like set apart. So you actually do some things with oil. It means you're uh, like God has called you for a special reason, and the special reason was to lead the people of Israel. Well, this was a little bit awkward for David. It was awkward because he's the youngest, and imagine the youngest in your family getting the highest status role. Awkward. And uh, also awkward because he is called to be the king of Israel, but the current king's not yet dead. Very awkward. And um, so that's where, <laughs> so as we see, as we meet David in these early passages, what we're finding is him in this awkward in-between space where God has called him and set him apart and blessed him for a purpose, but he hasn't really got the space to fulfill it yet. And it reminded me about how awkward being a Christian is sometimes. Now, I don't mind if I'm on my own. It's okay. Later on, you can say, Sam, you know, no one else feels like you. But there's the odd chance that one or two of you, what I, for one or two of you, what I say might just resonate with you about how awkward sometimes it is to be a Christian. So, so one way that I find it slightly awkward sometimes is that God has, uh, tells us that when we follow Jesus, we become children of God that were children of the King of Kings, and that all the power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And that he can do in us and through us much more than we could imagine. No problem, those are all great things. And then I look at my life and I'm like, hang on, this is what the Bible says I am, this is how I'm living. And it feels a bit awkward. Yeah, it feels like that. It feels like, little bit creaky, like it's not quite working sometimes. And um, then the other thing that's a little bit awkward about being a Christian is that we know Jesus is King of Kings and Lords of Lords, and one day he will return, and he will right every wrong, and heaven and earth will be recreated. And we know he is Lord of all. But meanwhile, it's awkward sometimes I find, I feel conflicted to be under the governance of you know, people that I don't think very fit to govern a lot of the time, or where I feel uh, conflicted between the values of the world and the values of Jesus, where I feel not just awkward, but really troubled by the day-to-day -day suffering of the world. And so I'm holding together this experience of real pain and suffering, and this knowledge that Jesus one day will put all things right. It's awkward. It's an in-between space. And as I live in that in-between space, I, I find the story of David, who is also living in an in-between space, very helpful indeed. And so we're going to start to look at the next part of this experience that David has. So he's been anointed to be king. He's been called out as special. What he actually doesn't do is go out and get measured up for a robe and a crown. Instead, he goes back to look after the sheep, and his brothers are off fighting the Philistine army on behalf of Israel. And David is at home with his dad looking after the sheep. That's, a, that's awkward, isn't it, when you've been called to be king? That feels a bit awkward. And then uh, things get more awkward, because then... His dad says, oh, David, what I'd like you to do is get someone else to look after the sheep with you. Um, load up your van or your horse or your camel or your donkey or whatever he had. I want you to load it up with ten loaves of bread, ten cheeses, sacks of grain, and go off to the battle lines where your brothers are fighting the Philistines and find out what's going down and come back and offer me some reassurance. At that point, I might think, Dad, don't you know who I am? I'm 
talking to my brothers, find out how they are, and then come back and like give you some comfort that the lads are alright. Well, I might, I might, I might find it awkward. And uh, so that is what God asks of him. So David, uh, that is what his dad asks of him. So David loads up the camel or the donkey or whatever with all the stuff and goes to the battle lines where is the Israel, the army of Israel, Israel is up against the army of the Philistines. And it is not going well because Israel is getting heavily intimidated by a giant of a man who actually does nothing but stand there. But that is enough to freak them out. So, Philistine bloke comes out every day, giant of a man stands there, and the Bible tells us the Israelite army were paralyzed with fear. So David has discovered this, and he's looking for his brothers. He's trying to uh, make his way through the crowds with his sacks of cheese and what have you. And we're gonna find out what happens next. And Lewis is gonna read to us the next bit of the story. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and said, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Here ends our reading. Okay, so I wonder what the first uh, point is that we can learn from David in his very awkward situation. I would suggest that uh, the example we see from David regarding the bread and cheese errand 
is that he is willing to serve rather than seek status. Even though he's anointed king, he is willing to serve and uh, do as his father has, has asked him. And this is an interesting thing, because had he not taken the bread and cheese, he wouldn't have been at the battleground, and he wouldn't have seen what was going on, and he would have had no chance of bringing about a tremendous victory for God. And so, running the small errand was profoundly important. And there's um, one of those like slightly crazy sections of the Bible, Zechariah, full of um, prophetic writings about what God is going to do. And um, one of, the, one of the, the sort of points that is made in, in Zechariah 4.10 is about not despising the, the season of small beginnings. This translation from the New Living translation, translation says this. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. And I think when we choose service over status, we are stepping into the beginning of God's work. And we have no idea of what wonderful things, what extraordinary things for the kingdom this might lead us into because the bread and cheese errand is a, you know, is a, leads to a story which has like lasted forever, which is about the tremendous victory of God. And so even in the awkwardness where David has been anointed someone important, he takes on the errand and does not despise it. And he's in the right place then, at the right time, to do something incredible for God. Number two, uh, what can we learn about David from David in an awkward situation is how he deals with uh, the slander of his brothers. So you need to sort of like imagine the scene, you know, he's turned up, he's brought all the resources, he's done as his father's asked, he's now trying to find out what's going on, because he thinks he's still going to go back and give his dad some uh, reassurance that the other boys are okay. So he starts asking around, hey guys, what is going on? He's literally only trying to find out, but his brothers are straight on it. Like, clearly there's a little bit of sibling rivalry history going on, isn't there? Because he asks an innocent question, like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, it's you. Who do you think you are? What well, oh, typical of you to come along as well. How conceited you are. Who do you think you are? Asking questions like that. And they are straight, putting him in his little box. Maybe, I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes when I go home to my parents, it's like I'm 12 again, and I do some stuff that I'm like, Who, who's that? Who's doing that? You know, it's like, I might like take an attitude or something, or like, I might, I might do something that is like what I used to do when I was 12, and it's like I forgot I'm an adult, or I might say something spiky to my brother, or like he might say something spiky to me. And so these, these, um, these, these sibling things, they can come out in all, in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of time. And clearly, it does get under David's skin. Because he's like, oh, right, okay, then, oh, I can't even speak now, can I? Oh, I forgot, I've got no right to ask a question. And you can see he's like, he's annoyed. He's really making him cross. And there's nothing wrong with being annoyed. There's nothing wrong with anger. Anger is not a crime, it's not a sin. What is a crime and a sin is like when you do the wrong stuff with your anger. And so here, David is like, he's angry, he's like, oh, right, thanks, you know. 
so I won't even speak. And he, he has a choice at this point. So, choice one is, tell my brothers what I think of them and self-justify. Actually, I'm not here for me, I'm here for dad, you know, and take up quite a long time having that self-justifying conversation. Uh, number two, he could sort of slander them back and go, oh yeah, typical of you to speak to me like that, that's what we've done for the last 20 years, I don't expect any less, and become fully distracted by that. Um, maybe, I don't know, maybe if he's not quite such an extrovert, he might like freeze them out. You know, like stomp off, uh, give them the silent treatment, that kind of thing, emotionally withdrawn. All those things David could have done. Had he done them, they would have been very time-consuming and very distracting. And they're very human things to do, but they don't lead us anywhere good. And so it's really interesting to see that when David's brothers start having a go at him, and when he's feeling angry, right, oh yeah, you know, sorry I spoke, he still keeps his eye on the main goal. He is not distracted. He thinks, oh fine, if they don't want to speak to me, I'm going to go ask someone else so that I can find out what's actually going on. So he's very focused on his purpose. He doesn't allow his anger to, to make him distracted from the purpose which he has, which is to gather information. He's very focused and also very curious about the bigger problem. He's curious to find out what's going on. And in verse 26, he has already identified what the actual problem is, which is not his annoying brothers. The actual problem is Goliath, this giant of the Philistine, and he, David has the wisdom to see exactly what the problem with that is, and he says, who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So it's not the fact that the bloke's massive that worries him, it's that he is blocking the, the, the ways of God. He is, he is oppressing the people, and he, he is getting in the way of what God wants to accomplish. He's not just defying the Israel, Israelite people, he's coming right against God. And David is able to see the real problem because he's not allowed himself to become, become distracted by defending himself. Now, we might not encounter physical giants, but we do encounter distracting difficulties in our lives. And those can see, feel, understandably, like absolute giants. And the giants in our lives might be conflict with other people. The giants uh, that are coming against us in our pursuit of God and the ways of God in our life can be uh, difficulties with our mental health, where we are so overwhelmed with despair that we can't, we can't see another way. And these are very real giants in our lives. Other giants could be the power of remembering terrible setbacks and difficulties we've had. Physical illness, all these things can become giants in our lives. But these are not physical giants, are they? Not like David was up against, but he saw the nub of the problem was a spiritual problem, that this giant is defying the ways of God. And in, um, in the New Testament, in Ephesians 6, we are told what the real problem is when giants come against us in our lives. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers, 
and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Uh, the giants in our lives are spiritual aliens, spiritual forces that come against us and sometimes it looks like humans. Sometimes it looks like humans being mean to us. Sometimes it looks like humans blocking our way. Sometimes it looks like humans not believing in the best in us. Sometimes it looks like humans criticising us. But behind that is malign spiritual stuff that needs to be, that Jesus needs to be the boss of, and that we need to cooperate with Jesus to see it for what it is and to slay it, much as um, David slayed Goliath. David isn't distracted by the annoying criticism of people. He's angry, but his focus is upon the kingdom opposition. He doesn't sink into personal defensiveness, judgment, or offense. And those things are really powerful giants in our lives, like sinking into judgment of others. Harsh judgment of ourselves is a really big giant that destroys our ability to do things when we're self-criticizing and diminishing ourselves all the time, it eats away at us and it makes us small. And when we take offense, if like David, who didn't take offense, if we let things stick to us, if we hold against people the bad they have done to us, it's, it, it's not taking offense, it's like taking the bad thing they've done and like sticking it on us and going around wearing it. And when we're doing that, we're kind of making that giant bigger. And through Jesus, we are invited to see the enemy for what it really is, which is a spiritual enemy, and to disempower it in the name of Jesus. So, Jesus keep, uh, so David keeps his focus on the real enemy of God, and therefore, rather than being disempowered by a sense of uh, personal weakness, or being overwhelmed by a situation, and being paralysed like, with fear like everybody else is. Everyone else, like the whole army is paralysed with fear. He's not. Because he can see what the problem is. And the amazing thing is, why I think this is so good as well, is he then doesn't look around and think, well, I can see what the problem is. It's like this globe is defying the purposes of God. Let me find someone who's a really good prayer. I know I'll get Louise to pray for that or something. Or like, oh no, I'll get someone else. I'll get, I'll get Rich in the worship band, you know, to play loads of worship songs because that'll drive it out. No, David looks at himself. He makes himself the solution to the problem. Even though it's awkward, even though he's a shepherd boy, not yet a king, though one day he will be, even though he's not the authorised leader, rather than looking around for someone else to be the solution, he offers himself as that solution. In verse 32 he says, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And so he stirs up two things. One, encouragement. Guys, don't be defeated. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. He's sowing seeds of hope in the lives of a paralyzed army. And then he says, don't, don't lose heart. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go. I'm going to take this one on. I'll carry this burden for you. 
I see the problem, and I will give myself as the solution. And as we follow the story of David, you'll see lots of ways in which he foreshadows the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And this is a classic one. You know, you see at the beginning of this story, the servant king. We talk about Jesus as the servant king. David is the servant, isn't he? He's willing to take the bread and cheese. He's willing to take on the small job. And then here, he is willing to say, this looks dangerous. I know what the problem is. I'll be the solution. And we see that in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That he is the perfect solution to our problems. And David humanly foreshadows this kind of idea. Then towards the end, I think it's around about verse 36 maybe, he starts to think, yeah, you know, it will be all right because I've killed, I've rescued sheep from the teeth of lions before. You know, I'm, I'm pretty brave. I've done this stuff and I know God has been faithful to me. And it's very interesting to me that that comes out at the end of the story. And it's almost like it, all that past history of looking after the sheep, like when he was looking after the sheep and going to find one that had been stolen by a wolf, I don't think he was thinking, hey, you know, son, one day you're going to be king, so this will help you kill some massive giant one day. No, he wasn't. He's just doing his day job really well. He's just being a really diligent shepherd. He's just getting on with what is in front of him today and doing it really well. And he remembers all this once he has offered himself to be the solution. I find that very interesting. It's almost once he said, I'll do it, like the Spirit of God says, yeah, you're right, son, and there's all these reasons why it's going to be all right. But that only comes after that obedience. That comes after that step towards sacrifice. Then comes the reassurance. And I think that's interesting when we might be looking for courage, because I'm afraid of quite a lot of things, and people think I'm really brave. Like, you know, like, oh, so she's really confident, she's really courageous. Actually, no, mostly, I'm scared of quite a lot of things. But I just got used to being, like, feeling scared of it, but doing it anyway. And that, sometimes, I think, is what courage is, is to be a bit afraid. But you still do it. And God reminds him, as he says, go on, I'll do it. I I'm going to be it. Then, Holy Spirit's like, yes, you're right, you are. And this is why. So obedience really opens up a way forward for him. And I don't think things would have, you know, things don't make sense till they make sense, do they? It's like, when he was out crushing, getting the sheep out of the lion's mouth or whatever, or taking the bread and cheese, he thought he was just doing those things. It's God that used those small things to make his life transformative for an entire nation. And suppose I think, well, where, where would... If I could choose one landing, well, I'm going to choose two landing spaces, right? One is the power of not taking offence. And we all take offence, well, most of us do. Uh, in one, you know, you, you know you've taken offence when it's like, hurt your heart, you keep thinking about it. That probably means you're still carrying this like, bad thing that someone's done to you. And it's really distracting and time-consuming. It takes your eyes off the main goal. And so, um, but even now, I can think, oh, Actually, uh, there is someone I need to forgive. <laughs> Even just thinking about it like that. And so I, I just encourage us to practice forgiving, releasing, letting go, developing a practice of well, when I'm in school and, and children say to me, oh, you know, someone said I was stupid, some 
a young child came to say, oh, they were crying, they were like, Miss, they said I'm stupid. And it's really offended me. And I, I was like, well, Lula, you don't look stupid to me. And then we were talking about, I was like, you don't sound stupid either. In fact, nothing about you makes that stupid thing right, as far as I can see. So, tell you what, why don't you just let it go? So it's not even true, is it? She's like, oh. I don't suppose it is true. I was like, should we just like park it, let it go, move on? She's like, oh, okay. And when I was uh, bringing up my children, you know, when they were having a bit of an argument, I tried to catch the eye of what, who, the one I had the most credibility with at the time, which varied, and I'd be doing this. And it's like, let it go. Let it go over your head. Don't let it stick. Because when we let that stuff stick, it really inhibits us. It really holds us back. So then, so just as we're like, a worship band comes back in a moment, things like that, I encourage you to just like, God, if I let some stuff stick that's distracted me or disabled me from pursuing the main goal, and just like recognize that, say sorry for that, bless that person that's caused the offense. And the other little thing I would say from this story that's a great help to us in awkward situations is not despising the season of small beginnings of like taking the small opportunities that we have and doing them wholeheartedly. Because honestly, we have no idea where a pack of cheese and 10 loaves are gonna lead us. We have no idea. And so if you sense like God is asking you to like do something or give something away or increase in some way or be brave in some way, however small it seems, I really encourage you to do it because you know, there's all that stuff about seeds in the Bible, isn't there? And what, like, no one would guess that a mustard seed would grow so massive. And so if God has been, like, giving you a few little nudges in a certain direction, and you've been like, oh, I can't be right, that's a bit pathetic. Or oh, like, oh, I won't make any difference, that's a bit small. It does neither here nor there whether I do that. Then I just wonder if Holy Spirit is, like, thinking, actually, it is here or there. Actually, what seems like such a tiny, insignificant thing I've got a few more ideas than you currently know about. So I'm going to say a prayer. Perhaps we can bring the band back. So, Lord, who's present? Ask, why don't you stand? That's quite nice, isn't it? Because it wakes us all up and it's like a bit more business-like. Let's present ourselves before the living God. And let's, first of all, let's invite him to bring to mind anything that we've, that any offence that's got stuck to us. Any offence we've taken. Lord, we just ask you, send your Holy Spirit. Bring to mind now, as the evening goes on, people we might need to forgive and bless. Situations that we've let get under our skin. That we should have let go in our head. We just want to turn from those, Jesus. And bless that person who's caused us offense. And reorientate towards you. And repentance always leads somewhere good. So Lord, we are sorry for taking a haughty attitude to small opportunities. Or for diminishing, like having a, a small view of the difference we might make. God, you know those points that we have turned away from because we felt they didn't really count or someone else could do them. We're sorry for where we've done that. 
guide you over the coming hours and days to visit us with your Holy Spirit and prompt us in the small things that we might follow you into adventures that are much greater than we